The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's really lovely to me every time that we do this little practice of saying hello, just the energy that rises in the Dharma Hall. This makes me um, yeah, just appreciate the connection that's so necessary on this path. I sort of get used to this practice of silence. Right, which is really good and useful, seclusion. But it's easy to forget that this connection with each other as fellow practitioners and Dharma friends, even if you're new today, is really important. Sustaining. Sustaining. So is there anyone new here today? Raise your hand if you're new. Welcome. What's your name? Flannery. Welcome. Cat. Welcome. Roxanne, <coughs> over here. Which, Mia? Mia, Mia, welcome. Somebody else over here. Someone else. Here? Well, Dan is our program host today. Dan's standing in the back. Oh, sorry. McKenna, welcome, McKenna. Dan's our program host back there, and he's available. Um, after the program, if you have questions, don't hesitate to ask. There's also a lot of leaders in the room, teachers, so if you bump into someone and you have questions about the center, ask. And if they don't know the answer, they'll point you in the direction of somebody else who might. I'm Shelley Graff, and I'm the um, Associate Director here at Common Ground. Mark Nunberg, usually our guiding teacher, usually leads the Sunday morning program. But he called in sick this morning, which is like a rarity for him, right? text message out earlier asking somebody to cover for him so he's got a bad cold at home so we'll, he'll be fine I'm sure but well, we're hoping we'll wish him well so I thought I'd offer my reflections on uh, just the things that I've been practicing with recently um, if you were here a few weeks ago I I talked a little bit about um, ethical conduct and maybe the relationship of action or the way we live our lives and the things that we do and how we engage our time with the body, right? This embodied presence and practice. So we'll continue down that, that path of understanding embodiment and what it means to be human beings who are alive in connection with each other. And in particular, this theme of connection. Right, as it just keeps coming to me over and over and over that connection is the way that word just really resonates with me. Connection is the, is like the, the fruit, like the, the basic part of practice, right? It's like the most basic element, this intimacy with the present moment. And that may sound elusive, the present moment. Like, what does that mean? Like, right now, in this human form as a, as a person, as a person with a personality and things to do and interests and intentions, spiritual values. What does that mean to be connected and embodied in this journey? And you might have noticed that when I came in, maybe you didn't notice, but when I came in, I bowed to the altar I bowed to the, the Buddha and um, the Buddha's aunt. This is the depiction of the Buddha's aunt here who raised him. 
Um, it's a sort of our way of bringing together the masculine and feminine energies into the room. And it's not something that's kind of formal practice of bowing or <clears throat> rituals, not something we've really talked a lot about at Common Ground over the years, and mostly, I think, is um, because we really want this to be a welcoming place. And when we sort of drop all the, you know, it's hard to come into a place that you've never been before and try to figure out all the rules, right? Like, what are people doing? Oh, we're supposed to do this bowing thing, and that feels weird. I don't know what that means. So it's not something that you have to take up, but really... I just wanted to bring it in as a, an element of connection. I've been finding some um, strength in more devotional practices lately. And so that my beginning of just bowing is less about um, like bowing to the Buddha himself or to the Buddha's aunt, but more about just remembering like, oh, this this possibility of awakening, of being awake here in this moment right now that's alive for me. And can I find that, right? And can I appreciate that other beings throughout history have been able to find that? So it's just like bringing all that in. And sometimes that simple bow just, you know, with the intention to open and connect, just open the heart and connect, then all other beings flow through my mind in just, you know, a few seconds. So the Buddha, the Buddha's aunt, but also my mentors and teachers, both here, some, some of you are in the room, and outside, just like appreciating that flow of um, wise beings, wise and loving beings who have been a support to me throughout my life. Like, oh, we're all connected, right? We're all connected, we're all on this path together. And it feels like a beautiful kind of loving way of beginning. And it also, this connection with the present moment, with this embodied experience, right? Because that simple bow is not just a, um, a, a kind of thing where I just think about, but it's real like an opening and allowing thoughts or images to flow through my mind and noticing that. But it's also landing right here in the body and feeling, well, what does that feel like in the body to be connected, to be connected to this lineage of practitioners, it's this ancestry, Right? This familial ancestry, this ancestry of friends and people that I haven't even met, wise beings throughout history. What does that feel like in the body to actually be connected in that way? It's this like invitation of intimacy right from the beginning. Like what if we had that every morning when we woke up? It's like, oh, this is what it feels like to be alive. It feels like this. Or the body feels like this. And even in difficult moments, like um, speaking in front of a room of 130 or so people, is not <laughs> is not something that has come natural to me in this with this personality in this uh, with this personality habits that are here. And it's not so much it's not really specific to Dharma teaching. It's just you know something that has been with me and part of this constitution for my lifetime. So even noticing like in very simple ways this kind of anxiety and learning how to love it, not hate it, force it away, going like, oh, you know, that instinct to go, here we go again, it's going to be a, a wreck, it's going to be hard. <laughs> but, you know, that only lasts for a moment and then there's sort of this understanding of like, oh, sweetie, like that's not the way. 
Like that's going to lead to more suffering. So how can I embrace this? And also realizing that that anxiety, even though it's protective and it can be embraced, is also a way of disconnecting. Right? It like provides some, um, like a barrier between this experience that I'm having, this embodied experience in this moment. It doesn't really allow me to connect with you, which I really want to do. Right? I really want to do. And just that kind of noticing, like, oh, this isn't the way, and that intention that arises, like, I really want to connect, I really want to be here, is enough. It's that loving energy, that fierce, not afraid, right? I'm not afraid to be close to this anxiety, this vibration in the body that feels unpleasant. I'm not afraid to do this. And it's also gentle, like, okay, this has been around for a long time. I'm not going to hate you. Why would I hate you? Like, you've protected me all my life. You're confused. But you've protected me all my life. You've attempted to. I may not need that right now. You know, it's like all that in just a second. It doesn't even have to come in the form of words, or it doesn't usually come in the form of words. It's more of like an energetic sense, and it's felt right here in the body. You know, from the groundedness, in the legs, in the posture, to the flow of energy, and the way the breath is moving in and out of the body. Like, there's so much to learn there. And this connection with the body is not the end of the line, right? We don't want to, it's not that we need to learn how to um, cling to the body, right? That will lead us to suffering. But learning how to, or take refuge in the body, right? But it's learning how to use the body for the tool that it is for us. For the tool that it is the tool of helping us ground in awareness in the present moment. Like everything resonates in the body. We start to practice this way, learning that we have a body all the time, which is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to learn. The body is complicated, and there's a lot of unpleasant pleasantness in the body. So it's our natural human tendency to want to like go away from that, like, oh, that hurts, let me go have a piece of cake or a cup of coffee. <laughs> or absorb myself in a good story or movie or a book or anything, right? And it's not that there's not a place for pleasantness. There's a place for pleasantness to help us learn how to be with the difficulties of our life. But really learning how to land and appreciate the body and not be afraid of what um, moves in and out of the body. It's an art worth taking up. I'm really invested in understanding the body these days. And it began just kind of, well, I've always been invested in knowing the body as a practice tool. Um, And I've had a lot of body dukkha lately (laughs) for six months or so, just learning how to be with the aging body in new ways ways that are new new for me or feel new and it has felt really hard very challenging in moments in many moments um, but also just appreciating that um, the aliveness that is there more and more these days as there's a deeper and deeper connection with the sensations of the body 
and what they what they are here to teach me, right? And how just every moment of my life vibrates in the body, really every moment. And so there's this question that comes up: Well, sweetie, do you want to wake up or not? Because if you want to be awake, then this is this is it, right? This is what your life has to offer you right now. Like, what can you learn from this? And kind of watching my mind or my heart bounce around to like, no, I want to have hope in something better, or um, I want to like even compelled to like fear what comes next. But really, like watching that the clinging and the suffering that it's held right here with any of those with either of those ends, and that bouncing between hope and fear is not the way, but the way just seems to be like surrendering to the truth of this this moment. Oh, it's like this. And even so much like fear is like this. Oh, this is fear. And it's felt in the body. It has this impact on the body. What's that like? Maybe I don't have to be afraid of that. Maybe I can be brave enough to connect with this. And like I said, it's it's really an art to do that. The Buddha's words on loving kindness uh, really stay with me throughout my day a lot of the time. Like this balancing between this fierce yes, right? Fear, this fierce or fearless, yes. Like, yes, this is the way it is. This difficulty in my body or this difficulty in my life. This problem that needs a solution. It's like this. Right? Can I say yes to that? This problem in my relationship. This suffering in the world that I don't know what to do about. This reluctance to engage. This disconnection. Right? This wanting to land in my privilege instead of be right in the mess. Like all of that. Can I say yes to all of that? But do that with a lot of gentleness. With a sweet quality. Like Pascal Eau Claire, one of a teacher that I've listened to a lot, I've not met yet, but I get to assist him in September, so I'm looking forward to that. And then assist him on a, a retreat for the queer community at IMS in late August, early September. But he talks about this, like, the fire of compassion of the sweet kind, right? So it's that fierce and fearless quality of metta or love or kindness, that big, bold yes, with a lot of patience and gentleness, right? That softness. So it's like bringing that to every moment of our lives, our embodied lives, all of it. So this like element of connection again and again and again reminding us how to do that. That connection is it, it includes the qualities of fierceness and kindness, the softness and the strength. Right? It may evoke like um, parental qualities. A parent that needs to be firm for the good for the safety of the child. And I'm learning that this, even though it's difficult, this ability to connect or be intimate with the truth of my life is really, it really supports a feeling of safety. And it can be easy for many of us to not feel safe in our lives or in the world, right? And there's good reason for that. But also there's this, I, just when there's like a, an honest connection with the body, even if it's really 
difficult or unpleasant, the experiences that are here, or that are moving, the energies that are moving through the heart, the memories, the fears, right? When there's a fierce yes to that, to that, this connection, there's like a feeling of safety, like, I've got this. I've got this. I think I can do this, right? I can feel safe in knowing the truth. I don't have to rely on delusion or denial or resistance. I don't have to rely on those things because I, I can trust that there's this capacity of the heart to actually meet this. And that, that's a, that's a kind of safety that's internal, that isn't, um, it isn't dependent on the world being a safe place or my life being a safe place in every moment. That doesn't, I'm not saying, that doesn't mean that finding safety and structure and relationships is an important and absolutely is necessary. And there's something that transcends the dependency on those things that are, uh, that we can't rely on, that we can't know for sure if they're going to be sustainable long term. Like I don't know if my furnace is going to keep working. I just don't know. Or I don't know if I'm going to drive down the street and get hit by a car. I just don't know, right? I can predict and try to do what I can to take care, right, so that I can find some safety. I can take care of my relationship with my wife so that it's strong and there's intimacy that's able to be cultivated there. But I don't know, really, how things are going to shake out. So then, if I don't know, what is the answer? What can I rely on? And this truth of being able to connect with the present moment's experience and through the body provides, there's some safety that I feel there, like, oh yeah, I can, sur- I can surrender here. I can do this. It isn't dependent on external conditions. It's dependent on this internal cultivation of awareness again and again and again this wise and loving, fierce and gentle awareness. And suffering is a compelling motivator. You've seen this. I've watched over the past six months as I've been working with body pain, how in moments when there's more intense pain, the mind is really awake, <laughs> right? And it feel, there's a lot of spiritual urgency. Like, oh, how do I work with it now? Right? What do I do now? When the fear is, there's sensation that's unpleasant, and there's a lot of fear about what is this going to turn into? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to be like this forever? You know, these thoughts that flow through the mind. That that felt sense of tightness in the body and constriction of the heart is really unpleasant. And then there's an immediacy to, like, I have to know how to work with this. I have to do this. I can't rely on the possibility of this getting better. I don't know. It might. And I can't be, I can't allow myself to get absorbed into terror. Right? And just crawl up and rest in terror. It's a truth to being able to work with terror, being there, noticing, feeling what that's like, and not being afraid of terror itself. But it seems like the wisdom 
that allows me to find some acceptance in the truth of my body without having to rely on one of those ends of hope or fear is where there's some possibility of continued practice, some possibility of meeting, connecting with intimacy, right? Some possibility of bringing in love and patience and being able to stay with what's happening in the body moment to moment. So, and watching that, you know, suffering is a compelling motivator. So in moments when there's a lot of suffering, when there's a lot of constriction or a lot of pain and clinging to that pain or not liking it, forcing it away or whatever, then there's this urgency. And then moments when the body is like, okay, feeling pretty good today. It's like, oh, what else is there to do? It's easy to check out. Forget that I have a body. Walk around, be disconnected right from the body looking for other ways to distract myself. Maybe there's a good movie on tonight. And again, it's not that there's not a place for those things, but just noticing that this the kind of ardency or urgency in practice is sometimes, is often motivated by our own difficulties. And so how do we embrace life's difficulties and learn how to use them in the benefit of our spiritual awakening? our total awakening, our spiritual awakening, which includes our emotional awakening, our awakening together in community. I was, I'm in this teacher training, some of you know this, the four and a half year teacher training and um, through Insight Meditation Society. There's 20 of us from all over the country, Canada, including Canada and um, South Africa. We get together three times a year, and we just I just spent a week, a beautiful week, with my Dharma friends in California. And one of the things that we did was visit San Quentin. I told a story a few weeks ago about my trip to San Quentin, uh, the prison there. But I thought I'd just, you know, this really reminds me of the men that I sat with, or we sat with for, there's a, a program now there, a mindfulness program, for people who are serving out a life sentence. So they meet together for 52 weeks, once a week for two and a half hours for 52 weeks. So like a year, right? There's a five-year waiting list to get in to do this program. Um, the outcomes are, are good. The whole purpose is to decrease aggression um, and learn how to work with emotion. So I'll get to do that. It was such a moving experience to sit there. We sat through half of us uh, one time and half of us another day, sat with the men through their program. And it was what was the most impactful for me was the sense of community that was there. And it just like made me reflect over and over about what happens when we, when we, when we know that we need each other when we let go of forgetting that we don't need each other or pretending that we don't need each other, when we don't rely on disconnection or anxiety as a tool to protect us from the truth of our lives. Like what happens when we really know that you are necessary for my awakening and I am necessary for yours without discretion, without discretion, 
together, they call themselves Tribe 993 because 993 is about 30 or so men in the room, and 993 is the collective number of years that they've served already. So they're serving out a life sentence, right? So there's some urgency, motivation to wake up. And they, it was, I forgot, you know, it was, I'm sure I forgot for good reason because there's a lot of privilege in my life. I'm sure they never forgot that they were in prison. But I forgot in moments that I was in a prison. It was, I have never, I can honestly say that I've never been a part of a community that claimed each other in that way. Like in the words that they used, there was one man who was sharing his story. He'd been working on it for weeks. He'd been working on it with mentors in the room, other inmates that have helped him through this. And there was a, um, a, a moment when he was going to tell the story and his one of his mentors started to speak first and was like, looked right at him and was like, man, I'm going to push you on this. You know I love you. And the guy just said, come on with it, right? So that, that loving and fierce quality there. And examples like that again and again and again. Like they were clearly, in sitting in a small group with them, where they were just talking through their, the topic was original pain. So their childhood struggles, not to deny those childhood struggles, but also not to use them as excuses for current behavior, right? It was part of our ethical obligation as human beings to understand and embrace the difficulties that we've had in our lives, but also not use them as excuses for bad behavior. And so this is what they were doing together, talking about their original pain and understanding it. And I'm, I'm a white person in this room of all black men in this small group, and they welcomed me without hesitation. They welcomed me into their intimate space and talked about the most vulnerable parts of their lives. And it wasn't because of me. It's because they knew they needed each other to wake up. And they valued their awakening and their emotional awakening as part of their own spiritual and human awakening, right? With the most integrity I've, I've ever seen. And in, in addition, I've seen a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a social worker for a long time, and I've been working in restorative justice for 15 years. So I've sat with people who have worked through some difficulty in their lives. And it was, it was really so moving to be a part of a community like that. And just made me again and again reflect on the kind of communities, like what would that take for me to be that kind of person? To show up in my communities here at Common Ground and with my wife, with my friends, with the people I don't know? Like what would it take for me to claim everybody I meet? To not throw anybody out of my heart? Like what would that take? When my goddaughter was, she's 10 now, but when she was really little, we would, she would come to Common Ground sometimes and we would drive home together. We'd pick her up on a different day and she loved to sing, so we'd sing. And at the time we were singing this song here at Common Ground, this Thich Nhat Han song. You know, what would bother a Buddha, I wonder, is one of the lines. And then somebody from the audience would shout out something like, mosquitoes. Then the room goes, you don't mind no mosquitoes. Something like that, right? <laughs> So we'd sing the song in the car with her, and she would shout something out, right? And we would say, you don't mind the mosquitoes. And, and she, she said something like, um, I don't, mean people or something like that. And I said, you don't mind no mean people. 
And she was like, really? (laughs) 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 And then we got into this conversation about like, well, who is it? Is it okay to throw anybody out of your heart? Right? Like the Buddha didn't mind, wasn't saying that. I don't think any of the Buddhist teachings, you know, is about like, it's okay to be mean. (laughs) But what is it like to claim people, to claim each other even when we're mean? Even when we do despicable, despicable things? Because we're really invested in supporting each other's awakening. Right? What does that mean? To claim each other because we know. I know you have a body. It's like I have a body. Just that alone, it makes it hard to be a human being. It's hard to have a body. Like, go to the point where we can actually find some connection with each other. Set aside some of the other things. This doesn't mean we have to agree with things that we have to use our wise discernment to know, like, that's not okay and be able to speak truth to that when we have to. Find ways that's the wise, that's the fierce and fearless part, right? And the soft part is, like, I'm not going to be afraid to claim you under any circumstances. I'm not going to throw you out of my heart. It's easier said than done, right? So I bow to the Buddha <laughs> and all the wise beings that have come before us to help pave this path for us. Hi, uh, my name is Leslie. I've been coming to Common Ground now for probably I don't know, a little over a month, maybe two months. Um, and I'm really, really glad that I have been. Um, this past week has been really, really tough. Um, my dog, who is my life, um, was diagnosed with cancer this week, terminal cancer. Um, my sister, who lives out of state, um, who's been living with stage four lung cancer for two years, had surgery yesterday. Um and, you know, my elderly mom is dealing with financial issues and there's just been a lot of stress in my life. And um, coming back to this practice as, and, and your talk today, Shelley, has really um, helped me try to embrace and just this, this idea of like a radical acceptance of suffering and that everything is impermanent. And it, that's really helped me kind of live in, in these moments that have been really, really tough. Um, so I'm just really appreciative to be coming here and have this community and bringing back to uh, a good practice that's helped me through a lot of tough stuff. Um, thank you, Shelley. And I really appreciate you sharing your um, terror about speaking <laughs> in public. I, I experienced that as well. And um, it's, it's, it, it's just so... Um, affirming to hear somebody else uh, say that too. Um, and one thing I, I read in the paper this week is that um, half of American adults now have heart disease. And that's because they're including high blood pressure with that, so they've expanded it. But one thing I've really been noticing in this practice and also in uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's practice, which I practiced in before, a more heart practice, is that it is so important... Um, to always, always, literally, secularly, physiologically check in with your heart. Not in some romantic way, but truly like feel how everything is landing in your heart in that moment. And even when you're terrorized and speaking in front of a group, it's like feel that because unless we feel that, there's never a way through, you know? And, and, but the way through I've also now been practicing with is, I, I don't know if I got this from Tara Brock, but it's um, stay close and do nothing. 
um, which really helps to rewire the fight, flight, or freeze. It's stay close and do nothing. And that is just so like, wow, when you're terrorized, I, I mean, obviously, if there's like a semi-truck heading for you, probably don't <laughs> stay close and do nothing. But, but re, you know, for the most part, these, these psychological terrors that we have of public speaking or being alone or all these sorts of things, it's like if we can learn to just stay close and do nothing in that moment, it's just, um, I feel like that's where the answer will come, you know. Thank you, yeah. Thank you. I would include, I mean, I didn't hear that talk, I don't know. There's probably a lot more that Tara Brock says than that, but um, I would say, you know, let it move, that do nothing, like letting it move, right? Because all of these emotions are energies that can be felt in the body. Mm -hmm. So the energies want to move, right? So then just giving them a way to move. Sometimes it's this, especially if it's a strong emotional energy like anger or fear or terror, just giving it a means to move, even if it's just like stretching out a little bit, standing up, doing a little movement of the body, just encourage sing, whatever it takes, just to allow it to move, staying close, letting it move as one other option too. Yeah. Thanks. Anybody else? I'm Paige. I just wanted to say this wasn't a wreck at all. It was totally <laughs> not a wreck. And um, just thought of a line from the Tao that I think of often. um, Accept disgrace willingly. Accept the the misfortune that is having a human body. My name is Duncan. Thank you, Shelley, for your talk today. Um, For the past month, I've been living in El Paso, working on the border um, with serving communities of undocumented refugees. So your talk about connection is particularly relevant um, to my experience there and I think more than anything else I was shocked by how disconnected we all are um, to the realities of these people's lives and the realities of um, their personal stories and the journeys that they've made as they come across the border Um, but one thing I guess I'd like to offer is especially through this practice as it relates to this issue we learn that no matter how far away we are from the border um, we are our lives are intimately bound up in these people's experiences and that radical acceptance even though that can be really difficult um, I think is a good is a path towards rebuilding our emotional and spiritual connection um, to these people's lives because it is really important so your words are very comforting um, as I continue to process my experience there so thank you thank you Duncan and for your work there thank you for your work there for your brave connection yeah, um, his comment really begged in my mind another question. I think it's kind of important is that when we run into these instances where these high, where there's high polarity, especially like with immigrants and what have you, my reaction sometimes, a lot of times, is like to look at my my position and and kind of firm that up and say I I believe in that, and I and I don't find that as I look back, I don't find that all that helpful. You know, I it doesn't bring me closer to the to the situation at hand and I in listening to him I I I think it's very true if I can somehow either project or empathize with the people that are most affected um, I I don't know how I don't have any roadmap but I suspect that that will uh, bring me closer to understanding the the issue the trouble on a on a more personal basis 
So I was just curious on your feedback in that direction um, on some of the things you've experienced. I think we have to learn how to connect beyond our views. We have to be able to do that. And whatever, there might be different ways for each of us to do that. It might be through the body, through our, you know, but there has to be some way to human, to connect human to human. So for me, lately, it's been like understanding, like, I have a body and you have a body. Like, there's, we're both suffering by way of having a body. And that's been an easy way to connect, right? Even if I bring to mind people that are um, trying to cross the border or people in other countries that are living in much more difficulty than I am, right? It's kind of hard to feel what they're feeling, but I can often bring to mind an embodied, like look at a picture or, or something and that connect with their body. Like, oh, then it's a little easier. And hearing s- stories, but you know, we all might have our different path towards that, but th- I, we have to figure out, figure that out. If we use our views to limit us to separation, it's just creating more problems, right? In this community, outside of this community, everywhere, right? Like we have to be able to look at like, oh, I have this idea that coming to common ground and not talking is the right way to do things. And then I resist saying hello in that two or three minutes because it's not right. Or You know, we have to be able to notice like, and that doesn't mean that we can't do both. Embrace silence and embrace talking because we're connecting and we care. But what is our, where do we align as spiritual beings? Like where can we find some commonality and transcend views that separate us? (laughs) Thank you, everybody. And the children are here. Yay. Come on in, kids. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.